This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Hello and welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett and I'm joined as always by Max Frost. Hello, Matt. How you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thanks for asking. Uh, <laughs> We've got a great show today. Our first ever Banter episode with two guests at the same time. One of them is Jason Delisle. He's a resident fellow here in AEI's Education Policy Studies Department. And the other is Preston Cooper. He used to work at AEI as an education research analyst, and now he's a master's student at George Mason University. We wanted to talk to him about their new report, International Higher Education Rankings, Why No Country's Higher Education System Can Be Best. This has been a hobby horse of both Max and I. We argue about this all the time. Max, were you, uh, are you convinced by this interview? What do you think? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, my, I, lear- I learned a lot. I think that there are, of course, issues with the cost of education in the U.S., but that being said, we also have the best universities in the world, so... So, USA number tough one. Tough luck, yeah. yeah tough luck. Uh, yeah, but they, the report covers all the trade-offs between... The, basically, they measure... We'll let, we'll let them talk about it, but basically, they looked at three different metrics. Resources provided per student, the attainment level, or the share of young people per country that has a tertiary degree, and subsidies, or how much the government actually pays for everybody's higher education. And what they find is that you can do really well on one, but usually there's a, there is a trade-off there, and you don't do as well on the others. So we'll let them talk about it. Uh, there's two voices here you have to pay attention to. The first one you will hear is Preston, and the second one is Jason. You'll pick up on that as we go. So without further ado, here's our interview. Jason, Preston, thank you for coming on Banter. Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you. Wasn't sure who was going to speak first there, so <laughs> how do we figure that out? All right, so the subtitle of your report is Why No Country's Higher Education System Can Be the Best. What do you all mean by that? Because I feel like we hear all the time either, oh, the Germans are the best, or some people say, oh, the U.S. is the best higher education system because we have the best universities. So it seems like people do always rank which one is better than others. So how come you all say we can't really tell? Well, when you uh, look at other countries' higher education systems and you see the American media or people talking about, oh, Finland is the best, Germany is the best, they're usually only looking at one dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, whether the nation offers free tuition or not. But uh, what we find in our report is that there are lots of different things that we should care about when we're designing a higher education system. To take the example of Finland, it is the most subsidized country in the world. Mm-hmm. Students there, if you go to a university in Finland, you'll pay zero tuition. But it's a nice deal if you can get it. And that's because in order to make that, that high cost providing uh, that higher education free to everybody tenable, you have to ration your higher education system. And what we find is that Finland actually only accepts 33% of applicants to, uh, to higher education, that they're, um, the other 66% uh, essentially uh, don't have a place in every, every class that comes into uh, Finnish universities. Uh, and so what we find is that nations across the OECD, across, uh, across developed nations, always have to deal with trade-offs. If you want a higher subsidized higher education system, you're usually going to have to give up something else, whether that's how many students you're going to let in or how many resources you're going to give your universities per student. No nation can have it all. Quick question. What happens to the other 67% of Finns who don't go to college? Uh, well, so some of them uh, go abroad to uh, to be educated at universities in other countries, often where they'll pay tuition. Uh, some will go to uh, technical schools. Uh, some will just won't go to college at all. Uh, Finland's 
overall attainment rates, uh, how many people actually end up with a college degree is way, way below what it is in the United States. Yeah, and I think, so that's a good point, and Matt, to your, to your sort of opening question here is, people say, oh, this country is the best, you know, its higher education system is the best, and what they're really saying is that it's best on some dimension. Mm-hmm. They sort of picked one feature of, of a country's higher education system and said, well, it's the best on that, and then you sort of by elision, you know, left out the other dimensions, which Preston has just explained here. Uh, often, you know, are they aren't the best on those. Um, so, you know, in Finland, you have high subsidies, but you have low college attainment. And that's actually, I think, something probably worth explaining a little bit more because, and, and that really is a sort of the, 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 the crux of, of the of the sort of analysis. So that, elaborate on that a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so people think that uh, if you subsidize something more, you'll get more of it. Yeah. Right, that, that's how almost everything works. That's what we're told all the time. But higher education... Uh, is a, is a little bit different in that regard. Um, and Preston, you want to sort of explain like what we see when we look at other countries with really high subsidies in their higher education systems. Sure. So when we talk about subsidies in higher education, we're not generally talking about you know the government is just handing a bunch of money to colleges and saying do with it what you will. There usually is some aim behind those subsidies, and more often than not, that aim is to have is to lower tuition uh, for students, often to the point of making it completely free. And so what we talk about in our paper what we call the subsidy rate, as in what percentage of the overall cost of the higher education system is paid for by the government. In countries like Finland or Austria or Sweden, it's above 90%. So almost all of the costs are being borne by the public sector. But public budgets are limited, and uh, they're competing with other things like healthcare or national defense uh, or roadways or all these other different priorities. So usually when the government is shouldering so much of the burden of the higher education system, something in that higher education system has to give in order to keep costs down. And often that that means that uh, that universities uh, not having as much uh, uh, not having uh, tuition as a source of revenue will have to limit uh, how many students can go to the colleges in some way, or else they might, or or maybe they'll let a bunch of students in, but they will uh, get down uh, their cost per student so much that uh, the quality of the education uh, won't be very good. Yeah, so so sort of heavily subsidized uh, is is also uh, what you see in higher systems. Is it goes along with free. It's kind of it's more like a price control than it is like a big subsidy. And right? so you're you're covering a large cost of college, but you you tend to those countries that do that tend to prevent universities from charging tuition. Uh, and so the universities are sort of in a way they're sort of revenue constrained because mm-hmm. they can't charge tuition. They're beholden to the government for all of their revenue. And governments, you know, like we see in states, have competing priorities, and so they don't fund their higher education systems very generously. And then the really perverse thing is, uh, of course, you get rationing. We all sort of know how rationing works, right? But in in the case of higher education, rationing is particularly perverse because an institution of higher education, if it has to decide who it's going to let in, and it's, there's too many people for the number of seats they have, well, the most logical thing to ration on is academic ability. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just start letting in the students who have good grades and good scores, which tends to line up really tightly with people who come from high-income families. So now you've got a really screwed up system that is heavily subsidized, free tuition that's going mostly to upper-income households. <laughs> yeah, this seems like an important point because, I mean, we hear Democratic candidates all the time talk about free college and their objective would be to make it available to all. 
when I read your report, it sounds like it almost had the opposite effect, or it could, where you make it free with this much higher subsidy rate and you achieve less attainment. So would that happen in the U.S. too, do you think? It certainly could. I mean, what we see when we compare uh, 35 uh, developed countries across the OECD is we find that uh, that, that countries uh, with a lower uh, subsidy rate, so countries where less of the cost of higher education is paid for by the government, almost always have a higher share of the population with a college degree. When you have uh, the tuition, when when you have tuition as an available source of revenue, the universities can do a lot more. They can educate a lot more people, and as a result, you'll have a much more educated population than if you have uh, a place where uh, a country where everybody's getting it for free or not everybody's getting for free is the point. So how does the value the value added of a college degree in the US compare to that of other countries? Uh, so the value added of a college degree in the US I think is a little bit higher. But but I mean I think we you know I mean that's an issue that we sort of skirted in in this paper, mm-hmm. you know fully acknowledging that that that's a major source of debate, but I think our sort of measure that we looked at was we were just counting degrees. So what percentage of young people in a country have a college degree? And we sort of sidestepped the issue of whether or not it's worth it. Is it too expensive? Is it not? Because what we thought was interesting was that if you, you know, the the countries with some of the highest attainment rates, and that's not necessarily universally good, we can talk about Korea in a minute, Mm, Um, with, with very high attainment rates, though, are achieving high attainment rates without high levels of subsidy. And that that runs totally counter to what you're hearing right now in sort of the political debates, your point, Matt, of, of candidates saying, if we make it free, we can, have, we can have more people go to college. We can make it more affordable. Um, but the Korea example yeah. is one where you, you have perhaps uh, degrees that aren't you know, sort of diminishing returns to these college degrees. That's right. So in South Korea, um, that's where we have the highest college degree attainment rate in the developed world. 70% of young people in South Korea have a college degree. Um, and they get there without having a high subsidy, without having high resources for their universities. And I think it's a good example of a place where it is possible to have too much of a good thing. So right now in South Korea, the unemployment rate for people with a college degree is actually higher than it is for people without a college degree. Yes, because I... the market is so saturated with, uh, with people who have degrees that the, uh, the, degree, uh, the value of the degree is diminished. Yeah, I wrote that down. I wanted to ask about that. We just got to a little bit earlier than I, than I expected. Is that, I mean, is the Korean economy just unique or would that would a similar dynamic be at play in the U.S., do you think, just with degree inflation? Um, well, so when you have degree inflation, I mean, it's an issue of supply and demand. When you have a greater supply of college degrees, you know, the people with the degrees are going to be able to command lower and lower wage premiums, lower and lower, uh, you know, uh, employment premiums over their peers who do not have a college degree. So it is it is certainly a danger that it might happen in the United States. I'm not sure if we're right on the precipice of that right now. But Korea definitely is a cautionary tale for those who think that we should have everybody in the United States have a college degree. And That'll have no problems whatsoever. Yeah, and and a, like sort of the other side of that coin, um, we've done some work looking at um, Australia's higher education system. Um, had some experts here at AI and done some videos with them, and also published some work on it. Now Australia, sort of coming at this from the from the other angle, Australia used to have free college. 
prior uh, to to reforms in the in the 1980s. They had free college, um, and um, they realized that not many people were able to go and get bachelor's degrees. And they thought that didn't make a lot of sense for the, for the country. That's sort of a bad thing that they were un, undersupplied with people with college degrees. And so they thought, well, we need we need to fund more places at universities, and they but they didn't have the resources to keep making it free. So they said, well. We could charge tuition, <gasps> and and that's what they started doing. Um, that they allowed students to to pay it as a deferred sort of deferred tuition. They can pay it back as a loan as a percentage of their income after they leave school. But um, when they when they introduced that policy, the government was still capping the number of places. They were capping the number of bachelor's degrees, and they were in fact right down to the to the do- program level. So how many, you know, so you talk about central planning. So th- this is how, but they were, so they were still managing their system this way. And in the mid 2000s, they had the same sort of, you know, sort of epiphany, which was, well, we still need more people with bachelor's degrees. We still have these artificial caps. And they, they decided, uh, well, what if we let universities decide how many people to enroll? And they did that. Um, but they kept providing these generous subsidies on top of it, uh, and now the whole system appears to be sort of blowing up and sort of collapsing under its own weight because they, they can't afford to let the universities enroll whoever they want at an extremely high subsidy level, right? They're sort of price insensitive at that regard. Well, didn't something similar happen with the UK where they went from being free, universities are free, and over time they put the put intuition and kind of raise exactly. it exactly so for decades uh, the UK had basically a system of free college and what we found what what uh, uh, Judith Scott Clayton and her colleagues have done some uh, some research into the UK system and they found that after that free college system was abolished in 1998 uh, enrollment just shot up like that um, and enrollment among uh, low-income kids high-income kids middle-income kids uh, increased and the resources available to universities increased uh, the university system was able Able to do a whole lot more once tuition was abolished in the in the United Kingdom, and I think that's one of the clearest examples of a country making a change in policy and basically uh, prioritizing having a really high subsidy with free tuition less, and prioritizing other things like college degree attainment and resources for universities more. Uh, which really illustrates the trade-offs that we're trying to get at in our report, that if you want to have a really high subsidy, you have to sacrifice something else. There are always trade-offs when you're designing higher education systems. Yeah, and I feel like the, so, you know, some of the progressives that, that talk about this sort of free college stuff is that they, they, they sort of make it sound like the trade-off is just, well, we're going to have to pay higher taxes. And yeah. so it's sort of they, like, they won't even say that. Uh, they, maybe they don't even say that, right? They're sort of like, oh, we all know that, right? And that's what I'm after, right? So Bernie Sanders, we all, but we do know Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, Sanders the, wants to only, raise taxes, yeah, yeah. right? And we know, right? So and so, um, like, those things sort of line up. But I, I think what we show in this report, what's interesting here, is these countries. Yes, and we know that European countries have higher taxes, and we know that they have free college. Um, but it, but what we're showing is it isn't just higher taxes. It isn't just taxes that they're giving up. They're giving up other things, too. So despite having higher taxes, uh, they still somehow seem, uh, you know, a pattern. We see a pattern where they, they can't just have it all, right, where they, aren't, they don't have sort of universal access to free public colleges and high college attainment. Like, nobody has that. Yeah, so we should talk. Or sorry, do you have a point? You you, you go first. Well, so we should talk about. You, we've mentioned the. There's three metrics you measure in the report. There's the subsidies, which Finland does well on, among others. There's the attainment rate, which South Korea does very well on, and then there's resources, which the U.S. and the U.K. do pretty well on. What do you all mean when you say resources per student? 
So resources per student is the total amount of spending per student at colleges. So both done by the colleges, or done, done by the colleges. Okay. So the revenue could come from public or private sources. Okay, and with that, my main question is: in, in the U.S., you always hear complaints about how places like Alabama, LSU, will spend millions upon millions on like a college football scoreboard. Does that factor into the resources per student? Yeah, well, I think this uh, gets back to the question of too much of a good thing. And yeah. you know, I think there certainly are a lot of examples in the American higher education system of spending bloat and unnecessary administrators and lots of things that we ne- wouldn't necessarily want colleges to be spending money on in a perfect world. And uh, the United States, as as you mentioned, uh, does have a very 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 high ranking on resources. Uh, it spends more than virtually any other country in the uh, in the developed world. But uh, I just want to reiterate that you know the purpose of our report here isn't to tell countries what is the optimal level of attainment, what is the optimal level of resources. It's simply to illustrate that trade-offs exist between these three things, which we generally see as desirable, but could also have too much of a good thing at some points. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, I mean, so and, and I, I think that's a totally, totally fair question. Is this you know, resources are we're we're sort of we're putting them in the sort of positive camp, right? It's sort of like, is it is it good to spend more? Like we had to decide, is it good to spend more? Or is it bad to spend more? Yeah. And so we put it in the, it's good to spend more. And is it good to have people with more college, more people with college degrees? We said yes. Um, obviously, you could argue the other way. Many people, particularly on the on the right, say we have too many people with college degrees, and colleges are too expensive. Uh, they spend too much um, on their resources. But you know, I think the one of the sort of Ironies here for especially the the conservatives and and people on the on the right politically is um, one way to really reduce how much colleges spend, ironically, is to make them free. Hmm. Right? And so this is what we see in in other countries is if you say, for example, let's say in Alabama, the legislature in Alabama decides public college in Alabama will be free. They can't charge tuition. Well, now what you have is a price cap. Uh, and, like I said earlier, the universities in Alabama would be entirely beholden to the state legislature for 100% of their revenue and therefore 100% of their spending. They can't charge tuition. So what the legislature could do could starve the universities of revenue. And then they could really, then we would really shrink spending on higher education and really reduce the number of people with college degrees. Yeah. But I actually think really the sort of revealed preference of conservatives is not that. Yeah, and I, I don't want to downplay resources. To, I chose the negative example of new college yeah, football yeah. stadiums, but resources could also mean the U.S. does a better job hiring more professors, which might mean smaller class sizes and things like that, right? It's not all like new rec centers with grade A climbing gyms. Of course, yeah. There's a happy medium between the huge administrative bloat that we see on some campuses and, you know, the really shoestring universities that we see in South Korea, among other places. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, I know this wasn't part of the report, but I'm guessing universities outside the U.S. have a lot less of the kind of bells and whistles that we're accustomed to here. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's generally accurate. Um, not universally true, but generally accurate. Yeah, and we um, I did a, an edited volume with some uh, commissioned some work with some other experts um, in, in international higher education, uh, and, the, and a reporter named John Marcus wrote a chapter for that book, and he talks a lot about the German example where Americans are always kind of surprised when they go and see German universities where they're, they're kind of in a state of decay, uh, <laughs> right, where, the, where they're like, there's a lot of sort of deferred maintenance that is visible uh, mm-hmm. around the, the universities, which is, which, you know. It'd be a metaphor for all of Europe. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, so it's just, again, so like, I, I think, again, to this point of like revealed preferences, preferences I think Americans might be like, well, I want, I, I'm mad that my college costs so much, but I certainly don't want to go to someplace that looks like that. Yeah. 
I don't know. I would trade the hot tub at the UVA Aquatic Center. Before, before. It's, the largest hot, it's the largest hot tub on the eastern seaboard. And I used it maybe zero times. I used it, tw- I used it twice. So. I would appreciate a cheap permission. But, but um, I mean, if we look at the spectrum of Finland to the U.S., does the U.S. have the highest cost of higher education of any OECD country? Besides yeah. maybe like Luxembourg. And yeah, besides Luxembourg, if you look at absolute dollars spent per student, the U.S. spends about $30,000 per student, uh, all included. So... That's high. That's higher than almost. And when you say all included, that's also including tuition. Wow. So the spending includes tuition. So it's money people are spending on themselves yeah. uh, to a certain extent. But there's also yeah. there's also we also have a big philanthropic sector mm-hmm. in, in higher education. So we have ph- philanthropic source of funds. Um, you know, it's not it's not huge relative to the whole pie, but it is more in the U.S. than it is in any other country in terms of what what, what private and, and philanthropic sources are giving to universities, and that gets counted in those resources. Well, so if you have you know, but on this whole spectrum of cheap, free universities to expensive universities, systems, whatever. I mean, is there you know we talk about these trade offs? If you put in some kind of subsidy, which is really like a price cap on this. Is there, I mean, is there any sense of the prices have just become too absorbent past any kind of really economically grounded thing just to elite universities extracting rents and that? I mean, I I think we, you know, tend to focus on, one, we focus on outliers when we're talking about that. Those of us in the policy circles tend to have a very skewed kind of elite view of, of, of what people pay for college. And, you know, the thing that we that we don't see is the sort of the price that people pay after all of their student aid. So if you, you know, if you were to take a, a sort of middle income family and the students attending a public university, after all student aid is factored in, it wouldn't be unreasonable for them to pay tuition of $2,500 to $3,500 a year. So that's not right. But what I'm doing there is I'm netting out student aid yeah. and I'm not counting living expenses mm-hmm. and I'm doing in-state public school tuition. So that's a, you know, and another thing is, so if you look at sort of the, the federal Pell Grant program for, for low and middle income undergraduates, um, we've run numbers where about half of the students who receive a federal Pell Grant um, in, in recent years paid no tuition if they attended public universities. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, so, so we're, there's that, then there's the other, then there's the crazy examples, right? Where you yeah. talk about, I have these, I actually have these arguments with my wife, right? Where she's, she's also, she's thinking like, wait, you know, when I say these numbers, she goes, that can't possibly be true because, and then she like pulls some example of like full cost of attendance, room and board at an elite private school. I'm like, well, yes, that's, the, the, it's a very diverse system. That, you know, yeah. back to the sort of international thing is we have lots of different choices and options in our system um, versus, you know, some, some of the other countries where it's pretty, pretty homogenous. Yeah, back several months ago now, we actually interviewed the president of Harvard and he told us, might've been off the air, but I was shocked when he told us that a student from a family making less than whatever thousand dollar market was pays barely anything to go to Harvard with all the aid they have. So even places like that where the sticker price you hear is like $300,000 to go, it's yeah. brought down a lot more. Yeah, and they have to do, you know, the colleges, they, the sticker price has to be the price that they want to charge the wealthiest person that goes to that university because yeah, yeah. they have to say they have to say that's sort of like it's like a res, it's like a reservation price right where they're sort of saying i reserve the right to charge somebody <laughs> this price yeah <laughs> Fine, but, but everybody else okay. i'll give something else but in case a billionaire walks through the door i want to be able to say oh no no no, no, no. it's the full price is uh, three hundred thousand. yeah 
All right, this might be an unfair question because I know you avoid normative judgments in this paper, but you all have to have opinions. I'll start with you, Preston. What is the optimal mix of the three metrics? What should we be pursuing, do you think, out of attainment, subsidy, and resources we offer? Well, what do you think is the most important? <laughs> well, I think one of the biggest lessons from this paper is that price controls have a lot of downsides and that if you want to have a higher education system that is going to serve its students best, it's better to not necessarily say, we're going to we're going to make this free for everybody and we're just going to give a lump sum to the universities to let them do that. It would be more to say, you know, we should give a certain amount of money to, to students from usually from disadvantaged backgrounds or, or other backgrounds where they might not be able to necessarily pay the full cost of college to help them, you know, uh, seek out the college that's best for them but we're not going to guarantee everybody a price of zero by any means because I think we've seen that that has some some uh, some downsides. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. system has it, you know, we have it pretty right. I mean, when you start looking abroad, you know, if we're, if we're just comparing us against ourselves against some ideal, okay, we have stuff to work on, right? Um, but, I, but if we're, you know, if someone's going to start, if somebody starts the debate in terms of a looking abroad, then the U.S. starts, I think, looks, looks pretty good. Um, you know, the, and, you know, we have a generous system of targeted student aid, but it, it is, to my earlier point, is opaque. You know, we don't often see it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and we have we have universities. We have lots of choices, lots of access um, and one of the consequences and, and high quality. And one of the consequences of that is the high cost. But I think most people would actually take this set of trade-offs the way we sort of have them uh, relative to, to what some of the other countries are approaching. In fact, many countries, you know, I mentioned Australia earlier. Australia is trying to mimic the United States in, in how they're doing their system to make it more flexible and more open and give universities more control over what they do. So m- many countries are trying to emulate what, what we do. Yeah, the UK too. I think was uh, probably had the United States in mind when they did their uh, their reforms in 1998, which ended free college. Mm. Yeah, and I know this isn't again a focus of the report, but in general, we've had a few different people on who've tried to answer this question. Um, what is none to match the satisfaction? No, none, none. I don't think none to anyone's satisfaction. <laughs> yeah. What is right. the what, <laughs> what? What is the driving force behind college costs? I mean, it's gone. Everyone knows outpace the growth in other prices. In your guys' opinions, what do you think is driving that? Well, Preston has all. Preston will go on and on about all the the economic theory on all this. <laughs> uh, I will give you the sort of like f- flip answer on this: is that I, I think that, and but it is you know it's partially true. Is I, I think that people you know like to complain ab- about the cost of college, but there's a there's a huge demand for it. Um, they're just you know uh, people keep paying it. They're willing demand to pay for it. elite colleges There's too. Demand for elite expensive. colleges. And that's where really that's where the really expensive schools are. And you know, one interesting thing too is that the the price of um, the price of living expenses, the price of room and board at colleges has been rising faster than the consumer price inflation index, which means the cost of living is rising faster than the cost of living, <laughs> and right. So this this shows you this like this, and this actually is the sort of like data driven version of the amenities explosion on colleges. But if if people demanded something more Spartan, I'm sure that you know colleges would probably deliver it, mm-hmm. uh, but they they don't right now. And I would say that I don't want to let the government entirely off the hook here because we do have a uh, federal student aid system that does make it easy for colleges to raise tuition, especially at the uh, 
when we have uh, uh, unlimited loans that are made to parents of undergraduates, unlimited loans to graduate students. I mean, we have a system set up to reward tuition increases. I won't say that that is 100% of the problem, but there is definitely room for policy changes to at least temper the growth of uh, college cost increases. Okay. We're almost out of time, so maybe one or two more questions. How ironclad are these trade-offs? Because in the report, I think you adjust for GDP per capita, so no, so small countries and rich countries are on equal footing. But the U.S. is a very rich country, and I know if Bernie Sanders were here, he would say we can do it all. We can devote more money, get higher attainment, and provide higher subsidies, and provide higher resources per student. So, do these trade-offs hold for even super-rich countries like the U.S.? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, I think that's the pattern that we see. And I worry that, you know, someone like Senator Sanders would say, no, 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 we're rich enough that we can just throw money at that and we don't have to make the trade-off. And I, I think what the pattern we see in this paper, the sort of warning is that we may go down the road where we're thinking that we can have all of this. And maybe we try for a little while. But I'm guessing that sort of unintentionally we slip back into into sort of scrimping or rationing on something else. And that's what you see all of these other countries doing over and over and over again. And I, I think our sort of warning is that even if someone promises you it won't be like that, we would certainly be the only country then that ever accomplished that. Yeah. USA number one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll have to leave it there. Jason Preston, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having us. Hey, thanks. So thank you, Jason. Thank you, Preston. And we hope you all enjoyed the interview. As always, if you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and like us on iTunes or Stitcher or elsewhere. But apparently iTunes matters the most. I don't know why, but the algorithm demands what the algorithm demands. In the meantime, we have some very funny comments to read, although not related to the podcast. I want to read this one that Max received on a recent article he wrote. This man says, (laughs) so backstory, Max wrote an article in the National Interest recently about the ongoing controversy, he can explain it, going on in India and Kashmir with Pakistan. And he wrote this article, and first comment I see says, do you, do you get your paycheck straight from the Chai Coms? My lord, this is garbage propaganda. Are the Chinese paying you, and why aren't they paying me? I don't, frankly, I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. If they are, it's going to destroy my future working in the State Department. <laughs> Um, no, I appreciated that comment. What, what is going on? Or so, yeah, what did you write about? What's going on? Uh, well, you know, I actually wrote this article back in May, right after the election in India. Um, essentially, what's going on right now is that India, Kashmir is predominantly Muslim state in India. Technically, it's split between parts in Pakistan, parts in China, but most of it's in India. And Pakistan and India fight over it all the time. And until recently, it had always, since in, Indian independence, it had been when, like 1947, 1947, 48, yeah. Independence was 47, but I think the provision may have been 48. Yeah. Um, it had had autonomy from the Indian government. Um, and then it's always been kind of a hobby horse of the Hindu, kind of like the conservatives in India, to eliminate this autonomy, to reassert India's authority over it, you know, to make it an instrumental part of India as opposed to like a separate you know, kind of Muslim state. Yeah. Um, so finally, last week, after forever of talking about this, Narendra Modi and his party, the BJP, abolished the autonomy for the state. They actually downgraded it from a state to what's called a union territory. So the federal government of India now administers it directly. Would this be like if we made Rhode Island suddenly the same status as Guam or Puerto Rico? Or what, what does that mean to demote it? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's impossible. Obviously not the same, but like... Yeah, but, but what's, what makes it so complex is that... so. Kashmir, since 1989-ish, has had a bloody insurgency. It peaked. I mean, it's gotten better in recent years. 
But 40,000 people have died there. Lots of people have been killed across India by terrorists related to these groups. Um, Americans have been killed. So it's, Pakistani terrorists or Hindu nationalists? So, no. So Pakistani, Pakistan, the Pakistan army, really, yeah. and Secret Service, they tra- or ISI, it's called, train terrorists or whatever, you know, allegedly to go into India and carry out attacks on Indian soldiers in Kashmir. Occasionally they go elsewhere in India, like in 2008 in Mumbai when they attacked the Taj Hotel and a number of places. Yeah. Um, long story short, at last week, at last, the BJP changed this. People in Kashmir are freaking out. Um, they also put a crackdown in, no protests. They canceled, they shut down all internet, all telecoms, everything. Nobody really knew what was going on in Kashmir until a couple days ago and it started leaking out. So what, why are the commenters, though, so angry? Did you take the, well, so, these, these are predominantly Indian commenters. Yeah, on. yeah. You know, it's funny. Some of the Pakistan, I, I criticized Pakistan. Essentially, the argument in my article was that, yeah, Pakistan has made the situation in Kashmir worse, but a lot of the responsibility also lies in India. It's got the situation there has gotten much worse since Modi came to power in 2014, and now it's going to get far worse. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the Pakistanis actually came to my defense, I guess, in the comment section, <laughs> which I'm not, it's probably not a good thing. No, never but, read the comments. Um, <laughs> yeah, talk about ruining your State Department career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so then, so in India, there's essentially a troll army. Whenever you write anything critical of, like, Modi or the government or India more broadly or Gandhi, you know, you name it, like anything Indian, kind of an army of Indian nationalists will come savage you. Yeah. Um, it's all over Twitter. You can find examples of stuff every time. Does, does Saad, your boss, deal with this a lot? All the time. Okay. All, all the time. But yeah, well, did you have the other the other? Yeah, well, so I lied. There's, the, there's a second comment that I actually like even more. <laughs> it just says, this article is full of errors and false narratives. Max Frost should resign. <laughs> From banter, from everything. I'm still I'm still here, and I'm still podcasting. <laughs> so, okay. Well, if you're listening, please don't downvote us on <laughs> iTunes. Uh, I'm sure I don't agree with Max at all. India is a great uh, friend of the United States, and I'm sure they do no wrong. I like India. No, yeah. Well, their their comment actually <laughs> ended with "Indian democracy is great. Long live India." So that <laughs> that should tell us where where it's coming from. And you, I mean, you spent a year in India. You're obviously not anti. You don't have an agenda here, right? No, 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 no. But, you know, it's the, the issue with Kashmir is incredibly touchy, and I just don't think it's been handled the best way by the Indian government. And I'm certainly not alone in thinking that. So. Yeah. Well, you should still resign. <laughs> Need a new co-host. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week uh, with or without Max. Max.